Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. This week we thought we might finish off the year with another big show on Australia's favourite investment class, property. To help colour in the conversation, we've brought along Bushy Martin, who is a keynote speaker, all-round property investment wizard, and award-winning author of his 2018 book, Get Invested. As he details today, Bushy effectively started from scratch building his new wealth through share market investments before turning to the property market, and the rest from there is history. It was a terrific conversation covering areas that the property market conditions have changed since he wrote the book, such as undersupply of quality properties, falling mortgage rates, and changes to the responsible lending laws. We then dived into some of the big differences that the pandemic has brought, and in some cases sped up, certain areas of demand for Aussie property. We then finished off with a view to the future as we run through some of the key metrics such as projected yields and depreciation costs to consider when sizing up the opportunity in diving into an investment property. And just a quick reminder before we get started, we're only a handful of subscribers away from 3,000 on YouTube and we have the goal of hitting that 3,000 mark before the new year. So if you haven't already, Subscribe, click the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch, or follow us on your preferred podcast platform. We also ask if you could take a moment to click like on the video now to help our show grow. We hope you enjoy. Today on the show, we have keynote speaker, all-round property investment wizard and award-winning author, Bushy Martin. Welcome to Nucleus Investment Insights. Great to be with you, goers. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and have a chat here today. Great to have you on. Uh, and here to share his thoughts on the future of the Australian property market as well, I'm joined by Nucleus Wells Head of Investments, Damien Classen. Hello to you, Damien. Hi, Tim. Good stuff. All right, Bushy, well, look, uh, just to get our listeners up to speed, would you mind sharing a brief background on yourself and what drove you to publish your recent book, Get Invested, and perhaps a little bit about it, mate? Yeah, sure. So uh, the books are really driven around my own personal journey, I guess, if I, I wanted to sum it up in a nutshell. And um, uh, to give you a very brief rundown on that, uh, I was an architect and a project manager for just under 20 years, uh, did what most time poor professionals do and, and uh, burnt myself out, uh, ended up broken, broken and uh, divorced uh, as a result of working seven days a week massive wake-up call, recognise the need uh, uh, to start investing, to really uh, get some time back and do things differently. I affectionately refer to that as becoming passive-aggressive at that stage. Uh, in other words, being aggressive about creating passive income streams. <laughs> and uh, then went on a journey. Uh, so I uh, invested heavily in equities to start with, because uh, I was, really did start again from nothing at that stage, and we're talking you know, nearly 25 years ago. Uh, so I uh, invested heavily. I almost uh, practically day traded for a couple of years uh, to build up a, um, a float that then enabled me to get into my first property. And I got into property at that stage because of its leverage value, really. Uh, it enabled me to make my money work a lot harder. And in those days, guys, you could borrow 97% plus lenders mortgage insurance uh, with a very, very low deposit. So it was fairly easy for me to leverage into a number of properties. Uh, we, we learned pretty quickly that there's some real benefit in building uh, homes and we focus on residential homes as the highest growth and most affordable property assets to hold. 
Uh, we don't touch apartments or, or units at all, particularly in the growth accumulation phase of the portfolio, a bit different at the other end. Uh, so we really learned some lessons around the, the build side of the equation. So we focus on good quality homes in tightly held infield locations with high uh, demand lifestyle amenities that attract uh, strong incomes and growing incomes. And, and all of those are the fairly key ingredients to uh, growth. And uh, that put us in a very good position. So it took us about 15 years, my, my new wife and I, to put ourselves in a very strong position. Uh, as always happens, uh, people start asking you, you know, you, you should write a book and you should be helping other people to do this. So uh, we've got a our business know-how is really a facilitator for uh, investors with a focus on the property space as, as that part of their portfolio. And we take them on a, a holistic journey, guys. So what we found in the property space very much was that um, uh, there's no independence and there's no transparency. There's, it's filled with vested interests for people trying to flog you something. So hmm. uh, what we've deliberately done is positioned ourselves client side and we act as, pretty much as their project manager in effect. So we, we become their eyes, ears, arms and legs to put the property part of their portfolio together. And the simple analogy I often use is that uh, we sit down with people and we help them write their life symphony because most people spend no time thinking about actually how they want to live, what that lifestyle costs and how they're going to make that happen. So we spend a fair bit of energy in that piece and that, that really leverages up my you know, architectural design skills. You know, you start with the end in mind and work backwards to look at what your capacity is and how you're going to move from where you are to where you want to be. And then mm -hmm. uh, we've got a finance arm uh, because property in particular is very much a game of finance and it's the strategy and structure around finance that makes or breaks the uh, performance of the portfolio. And then the third component, we act as the orchestra leader. So we assemble all of the independent musicians that are required to deliver that uh, individual's uh, personal symphony. So, uh, and at the same time, keep all of those individual professionals honest along the journey. So. It's a far cry from those one-stop shops and the spruikers that uh, flog very average property to unsuspecting individuals. Uh, this is really adding a level of independence and transparency to the process, but also a robustness so that time-poor professionals can get on with what they're good at, and that's building their career and spending time with friends and family while we orchestrate their portfolio behind the scenes. So that that's a, uh, a long long journey into the books uh, the books became all of our clients over the years kept saying you should be writing a book about this bush you should be writing a book about this so uh, we've got a fair bit of time back on our hands now so uh, about three years ago i uh, put pen to paper and really documented that process so uh, books in three parts the first part is getting them excited about why they need to invest well, i guess like yourselves uh, there's a big recognition from from us and we want to really wake up hardworking Australians to the fact that just working hard, putting money into super and paying off the home loan is going to leave them in penny pinching poverty when and if they try and stop work. So the, the first part of the book really opens their eyes to the need to invest. And that's not just in property, it's, that's across equities and other things. Uh, the, and then the second two parts of the book uh, give them the fundamental principles, uh, what I like to call preventative wealth, where uh, if someone takes the eight 
vitamin supplements that they need over time progressively and I guess there's an underlying belief that long-term investment success is a long-term 15 to 20 year journey uh, then we've given them all those ingredients and then the, the last part of the book is in the six-step process that they need to go through to make that happen so that's that's pretty much in a nutshell the the, the books really are targeted at, at lifting people's sights and at getting them inspired but also uh, breaking it down in such a way that if they want to do it themselves they can it's not rocket science it's just a matter of following the the points and it's it's nothing new that this has been around for a long time we've just collated it in a way that's different so that people can link their lifestyle goals to how investment's going to help them achieve that hmm. okay so, actually, yeah. what, so what we're, we're talking i guess around around some of those um I guess a bit of your journey. You spoke a little bit about the pitfalls, and and you know we've spoken you know, a couple of times in in recent uh, podcasts we've done about sort of some of the dangers in the uh, the the apartment market at the moment. Uh, and so it's probably worth just sort of getting your sort of ground view on on so for people who are looking to do props and property investment, you know, so you spoke a little bit about some of the uh, the real pitfalls. And so we we've seen it and written about you know people who who turn up at seminars and then they next thing they know they own they own a um, an SMSF with some property invested in it and rolled in through you know at, at bought it at, bought it. At, quite high prices and and they've got all these they've all of a sudden got themselves all these extra uh you know financial planning and and uh and accounting costs that, that, that are sort of rolling in every year so i don't know if you've got some sort of similar similar types of stories or, or things that people should be looking out for uh absolutely uh, and, and the, the simple mass on anything with investment uh, for, for me personally and it's the, what i suggest people adopt similarly is uh what's the the person who's trying to help you what what are they actually investing in if they're not they're not doing it themselves and and you can't point to it then i, I have fairly limited belief in in what they're trying to tell me and i, I suggest investors do the same and in, in the if we talk about the housing space it, it really isn't rocket science uh, we we are looking at a long long-term wealth strategy which is for most investors when you actually look down and project what they're uh, wealth's going to be looking like, then growth is the important part of the exercise. So we adopt a borderless approach. So we, we don't look at backyards. One of the biggest mistakes that first time investors make is either to, to buy a house like they live in in their suburb, because if you live in a house, you automatically think you're a property investment expert. And uh, that's, a, that's a life of uh, trouble. On the flip side of that is, is the example you just mentioned, Damien, and that is uh, these one-stop shop slippery shoe salesmen that uh, have very glossy brochures uh, with with some fantastic looking numbers, but it, if you actually break it down, it doesn't tick any of the any of the boxes. So you know one of the first things there is that the uh, must be a good land component in whatever you're investing because it's generally the land component that is the appreciation part. And if you're one of tens hundred of apartments or units, then you're, you're missing that opportunity straight off the bat. There's no scarcity in any of that either. Uh, you know, scarcity in, in any investment is a very important part of it. So if you're in units and apartments, uh, you're off to a bad start. The sorts of people who generally buy units and apartments are first time investors who should know better, uh, or 
It's uh, on the owner op side, it's singles, divorcees, students. All of those have very limited buying capacity and very limited income potential. So guess what? The price growth of those assets is, is limited accordingly. So uh, I'm very gun-shy of those, also very gun-shy of the uh, self-managed super space, uh, particularly when they're trying to flog them dual lock uh, properties that just don't stack up in, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, self-managed super can be a vehicle that can be used, but it has to be used very sparingly and, and with a very clear uh, strategy in mind. Uh, but the key there with all of this is independence. And um, what I'm very gun-shy of are these one-stop shops where there are no checks and balances in the equation. So uh, the, the sort of approach that we suggest investors take is to recognise that it is an elite team sport and an elite team has a bunch of individuals who are very good at their individual positions but understand the overall game strategy. And as an investor, you're not a player at all. You're just managing your managers. So providing each of those individuals is a separate business. Uh, so, and it means that not all of those professionals are going to agree with each other. So the accountant can disagree with the, the finance guys. They can disagree with the, the uh property research teams, the project managers, the buyers agents, the, the property managers, uh, the full suite, uh, that's actually a good thing because that robust discussion uh, allows an investor to then make informed decisions on what feels right for them, not what someone's trying to shove down their throat and take a bloody great big brown paper bag with some com hidden commissions in it. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, so with that sort of at one side, I wanted to then sort of jump. So we're going to split this next part of the conversation into two parts. One is uh, sort of current property market conditions, and then the second sort of this longer term growth aspect, and 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 I guess what the issues are there. And so, um, I guess jumping to the the current property market, um, we've sort of been speaking. Um, well, certainly you, you write in your book, um, and, and just to sort of highlight. So this book was written 2019, was it? Well, that was when you yeah, won your business award. Published then, but written in 18. So in 18, yeah. yeah. So, so conditions are obviously, we've had this coronavirus and so there's obviously a lot of things, a lot of different things going on at the moment. And then and I sort of wanted to sort of touch on some of the major things you'd, you'd spoken about and then how coronavirus is affecting that. So so yeah. undersupply was one thing you, you wrote about in particular, you know, with high levels of um uh, unemployment, sorry, with high levels of immigration in Australia, and I guess um, also a relatively rigid planning system um, that sort of prevents um, you know, sort of too much building done too quickly. Um, you spoke of that being sort of a bit of a permanent feature. I guess have you changed your mind on that one? I guess how do you see that uh, in over the next over the next sort of twelve to eighteen months? Yeah, well, it, it's fair to say that COVID has certainly uh, shaken up the mix as far as that's concerned. But a, a couple of things to, you know, I'd, I'd see a lot of headlines and a, a lot of media stuff at the moment are, around the uh, potentially catastrophic impact of closing our borders. And uh, there is no direct correlation between immigration and, and housing. And I'd, there is an indirect one and a delayed, delayed one, but not a direct one. And the reason I say that is that uh, the, uh, most of the migrants, predominantly migrants, and a lot of them are, you know, I've, I've, I've did some homework recently to find, try and dig up some numbers, but uh, uh, about, uh, what are we now? About 
70% of migrants are on temporary visas. So very few of them are, are, are property buyers. That certainly affects the rental market. There's no question as far as that's concerned. Uh, and uh, if, if you look at those numbers generally, then uh, the flow on effect for those that become permanent migrants is generally a two to three year time lag. So what we've got at the moment is a situation where uh, we've the, the supply side has been affected by a drop in building approvals. So uh, yep. we've come back about 60% on the levels of achieved back in 2018. But, but I guess having said that, we've still got a, a decent supply hit coming from, from all the apartments that were, were started two or three yeah. years ago. Sorry, and I, I should have differentiated. Uh, my yeah. focus is on residential housing. I, I'll be honest, I yep. don't touch apartments uh, for, for the reasons that we spoke about earlier. I, I just, yep. okay. the investment uh, class, I, I wouldn't touch them. Uh, one, they don't get the growth, but two, given given the mass of them that has appeared in all of our capital cities, uh, they are really going to, well, they are already being belted in terms of uh, vacancy rates. Uh, there's still stuff coming on the market. There is an oversupply position with those, but uh, what's happened is it's, it's affected the overall aggregate look at what the supply side is. So we've actually been supplying the wrong type of properties and on the housing side, there's actually a shortage. Yes, so, and, and, and the demand of people who were living in an apartment and got locked in there for, well, six months in the case of uh, Victoria and, and two or three months elsewhere is suddenly decided that they actually do need a house, not, a, not an apartment. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and this is what happened in the Spanish flu back in the uh, early 1900s. We saw a decentralisation and a regionalisation occur, and that's exactly what's happening right now. And that, that actually excites me because... Uh, I, I guess one of the major differences, and you guys would know this, but one of the major differences between equities and the, the, the property game is that sort of quantitative models that aggregate means uh, can be actually very misleading when it comes to property because uh, unlike a sort of a perfect market that, that equities presents, uh, housing is the exact opposite of that. You know, every property in every street and in every precinct and every suburb and every city is different. So uh, it makes good headlines to aggregate all of these figures, but uh, it, it really hides and disguises the opportunities that sit in below that at the individual level. And, and that's, that's the true mystery, the science and the art of property in real terms. If you're, if you're doing it well, then uh, the, the mean growth or the mean vacancy uh, in a particular area means nothing if you've come up with the right solution in the right location. Sorry. Now, with, with the regional side of it, I mean, there's, I don't know if I'm oversimplifying the issue, but I, I sort of feel as if, um, you know, Australia is a pretty big place. And even if you exclude all the middle of the, the deserts and all that type of stuff, we're still a massive country relative to our our population size. And so it seems to me that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the undersupply issue for houses is, is a sort of a, a decision to, to, to make um, development more difficult and, and to put zoning and, and things like that. And that sort of regional areas, you know, if you took Dubbo, for example, there's no reason why, there doesn't seem to be a genuine reason as to why a property in Dubbo should be so much more expensive than, than a similar regional city in um, uh, in the US or, or somewhere like that. So I, I, do you think there's, how much do you think, the, I guess where I'm getting to is how much do you think it, it's an element of the planning side in Australia and whether there's any, um, you see anything 
looking to change that or it's more very much the, the same, you know, looking to restrict um, sort of ex bigger expansion in regional areas? Yeah, there's a, there's a few topics mixed up in that one. So let, let me tackle a couple of those. Uh, the biggest issue uh, around planning is infrastructure cost. So the underlying infrastructure cost, once it's there, no problems at all. But if it's limited, then what we're talking roads and, and services essentially, there's a, there's a big initial cost, which is generally coming out of government purse to drive that. So, and that money needs to come first. So uh, where the, the, the government's looking at maximising their opportunity, then uh, putting in big swathes of, of infrastructure at, at their cost uh, is often a challenge when there's budgetary constraints. Uh, and then offset that with the fact that, uh, as you well pointed out there, Damien, we have a discretionary planning system here in this country versus a, a more rules-based uh, approach that happens in other parts of the world. And I do think that that's, that does tend to logjam the whole process. If you look at most council areas around the country, it, it takes months and sometimes years to get stuff through. So there's a, a massive blockage at that level. Uh, uh, so while we've got endless buckets of, of land in real terms, it's unserviced land. And uh, when governments are trying to economise and save money, uh, they're, they're generally not in a big hurry to outlay massive amounts on that on that infrastructure. So that, what's, that tends to become its own constraint. So you've got the cost constraint, you, then you've got the uh, the planning approval constraint that, that tends to cover. And I think, let, let's face it, guys, in behind this, uh, if, if we look at, and COVID's been a perfect example of uh, the, the government's belief uh, and probably appreciation in, in voting terms that, that given you know, over 50% of the average Australian's family store of wealth sits in their home, then uh, there's no government that's going to be dumb enough to put that at risk. And, and, and we've seen with the absolutely incredible level of stimulant spending that's occurred during COVID, uh, you know, I, 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 one respected property researcher, SQM Research, uh, hit the headlines last week saying that uh, uh, the governments will never allow a housing crash. And I think they're right. There's too much riding on it, both from a voting perspective, but also the score of wealth. So it's created this critical mass property where no one can afford to let it fail. Yeah, well, and, and see, that's what we've um, our, our whole investment uh, thing for the you know we've we sort of switched um, you know a couple of months ago to to this view that um, th that's sort of stretched across a number of different ranges now, and it's basically just. Uh, we don't want people to go bankrupt. We don't want people to get evicted from their home if they can't um, pay their rent. We don't want people to get evicted if they can't pay their mortgage. We're just going to try and um, we just want everything to stay the same for a little while and we just don't want anything bad to happen. And then here's a bunch of money flowing into the system. And so, um, yeah, so, so I guess what we've, we've sort of had this whole thing about saying that, uh, you know, stock markets are basically, um, and, and bond markets are, are basically central banks and and um and governments and so you, you're just reliant on the, this stream of money coming because if the money stops or if they decide that yes people who can't pay their mortgage or can't pay their rent should be evicted then all of a sudden there's all these other flow-on effects and and nobody wants that at the moment not not at least until the next election spot on 
spot on. Exactly. You, you've, you've summed it up beautifully there, I think. And I, and I think any any government, once they start having a look at their voter base, is going to, in Australia, and I'm talking in Australia, of course, is going to recognise that uh, that the wealth effect of of housing has a massive impact on consumer confidence, which affects spending. And you know, everything that the government has done since COVID hit, uh, and we, you know, we're suffering through the recession that we had decided to have rather than one that we had to have 30 years ago, is that this, this, they want us to spend because we, the only way to get out of recession is to, is to spend your way out of it. So uh, they've done a very good job of doing that. They've dropped the cost of money so that the cost of money to service to the government as well as the banks and everyone else has is, is never been lower and, and I don't believe it's going to get much lower. But that, the flow-on effect there is in, into housing. We're in a situation where uh, you're going backwards if you're leaving money in the bank, uh, which is going to, in a, in a low interest rate environment, uh, is going to, in a low inflation environment as well, and, and that's not going to change in the foreseeable future. Uh, people are going to start sticking into assets. And if you're talking the psyche of Australians who, who like the safety and tangibility of bricks and mortar, then uh, all of those things put together are likely to put some pretty strong demand on, on property generally. But, it, but it's going to be patchy, guys. I always say this, you know, the, the tide's not going to float all boats. Uh, you know, good quality properties are going to do very well. Uh, the rubbish uh, will struggle, and it's be no no different than the equities markets, I'm sure. Yeah, well, that's I guess that's where I was sort of leading with one of these next questions about this whole idea of income consistencies, and and you know, obviously we've had a lot of um, uh, you know tenant problems with tenants and um, and not having to pay rents and and you know governments letting people you not have to repay their mortgage with the idea that. Um, you know, one day the, the the tenant will suddenly show up with the, the ten fifteen thousand dollars worth of rent they've missed, and you can repay your mortgage and it'll be all be all right. I guess the um, how much of an issue for investors do you see that sort of investors being scared off by by some of the incoming consistency you've seen over the last um, sort of six months? As, as yeah, kind of well, I, I, again, it's only a relatively small sample guys uh, and it tends to be on the stuff that hits the headlines which is which is again uh, CBD apartments uh, if, if you look at uh, other areas around the country and, th and this is where uh, good property is very locationally specific so you've, you've got to line up all the ducks in terms of the growth drivers but uh, uh, let's take Perth as an example uh, vacancy rates in Perth Perth housing I'm talking housing again are, are less than one percent uh, yep. We've seen rents rise over the, the duration of COVID by 9% in Perth. Mm. So uh, there's a bit of a danger in, in looking at a catch-all. Uh, it, it is going to be very segmented and, and very patchy in terms of where that sits. And a smart investor is going to know that. A smart investor is going to put his money in the, in the sweet spot where the, the uh, rental demand, uh, the income drivers in that location are going to be working to their favour. And avoiding those types of properties and those types of demographics that are going to be problematic because uh, if nothing else COVID has been an accelerator it, it's just made uh, the strengths and weaknesses more obvious in a much shorter space of time hmm. in terms of um we spoke a little bit about the the banks there um uh and i i guess we looked upon um I don't know whether you see it the same way we sort of saw the royal commission come out um banks all of a sudden uh, look at what they've been doing and, and responsible lending type 
type laws and, and think, hey, maybe they've got a bit of a problem here. And so they wound back a lot of their lending, um, which then sort of put the um, set house prices down a fair bit. Um, and then sort of post-Royal Commission, um, we had the um, the government come out and basically say, uh, you know, it's, it's all better off. We want, we, want, we want as much lending as possible. And then um, we've seen recently the government talking about getting rid of the responsible lending laws. Um, how much do you sort of see that, that whole bank um, willingness to lend sort of colouring your view of the market? Yeah, I, as you know, we've got a we've actually got a, uh, a finance breaking arm, so I'm fairly intimate with what's happening at that level. And mm. uh, a, a couple of comments because again, uh, headlines can be a little bit dangerous. Uh, if you believe the headlines, they they're actually tossing responsible lending out. Well, that that's that's a misrepresentation of what's actually going to happen, because uh, what is actually going to happen is that responsible lending will remain in play for. Uh, those at-risk products and those at-risk clients, because if we actually look at the numbers in the Royal Royal Commission, the uh, while some of the some of the predatory behaviour by banks, brokers, and others was uh, appalling, uh, it represented about one percent of the lending transactions. And uh, as what's tended to occur both during the Royal Commission and, and prior to it, what, what's happened if we Trace the start of this is back to 2009 when um, uh, the Labor government introduced the responsible lending regime uh, following the GFC, and which was very appropriate. And that was focused around making sure that banks and uh, other lending facilitators didn't give you a loan that was not unsuitable for your purpose. Uh, and that, that's a fairly restrictive exercise. But what happened flowing on from that was that uh, APRA and ASIC uh, both got involved and there was a, a, a progressive tightening because what, what the uh, fraternity have recognised is that interest rates were traditionally the only blunt instrument that was used to try and dampen demand. Uh, that was proving to be a little bit ineffective and what, what they've then done is to put pressure on uh, lending policy as, as additional instruments to try and uh, either dampen or, or turn up the volume. Uh, what's happened after the, the and during the Royal Commission though is that the pendulum unfortunately has swung too far. So what's tended to happen is where the lending fraternity currently caters for the lowest common denominator and what it's done is hamstrung uh, good quality borrowers from either being able to borrow anything at all or borrow a lot less than what they can actually afford. And uh, we've seen layer upon layer upon layer of risk mitigation put in place to the point where it really has got silly. You know, I, I've seen uh, multiple investors that we look after in the space of 12 months shift from being able to borrow an extra million dollars to nothing, to zero. Mm. And, and they're strong. They are, you, you do the numbers, they are, very in a very strong position to secure and afford the ongoing debt. So what what I see happening here, and there's still a, there's still a little bit of uh, water to shift in the bucket before it, uh, it becomes uh, legislation in, in March. But uh, what what we're what we're going to see is, uh, and we're already starting to see it a little bit, is a reduction in that in that multiple layered approach that is is having a double triple quadruple bite 
at the same cherry. And uh, it's not being removed, it's actually being reformed. So uh, if we look at the, the broking market, the, the residential loans in the country now, uh, on the 1st of January, the uh, best interest duty legislation comes into play. And that's actually going to be far more onerous than the responsible lending laws were with, with very significant penalties. If a, if a broker steps outside of the line uh, in, in relation to it, there's, there's fines of in excess of a million dollars and, and loss of license if you, if you transcribe. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying there, guys, is that I don't believe uh, they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater with this. Uh, what, what has needed to happen is common sense come back into the equation in terms of lending and, uh, and to remove the log jamming that's going on. Now, we've, we've seen uh, people in a position to be able to, to borrow, move from buying a property and getting their finance organised in two weeks to taking two to three months. So uh, it, there's a, and the cost to government, the cost to the banks and the cost to the customers in, in, and the cost to the industry of those delays is pretty significant. So, yeah. well, can, can I split this into two parts? One part yeah. I'm sort of going, I, I can see where, I, I, I take your point that um, there are individuals out there who are not being addressed properly, you know, with one way. But I guess the flip side is Australia's got the second highest level of household debt in the world. We're obviously doing a pretty decent job at getting, <laughs> getting credit out somehow to people. Um, whether, whether it's exactly right or not, sort of anyway but actually maybe we could even leave that to one side and mm -hmm. and because i'm actually interested in your thought your suggestion so so for investors at the moment um versus a versus an owner occupier do you still see it as as relatively difficult for or are you still seeing at the ground level that it's relatively difficult for them to get the lending or is it it has started to ease up a bit now a, a tiny bit it's still very yeah. difficult. I, I've, I've been saying for a while now that money's never been this cheap, but it's never been harder to get. And particularly for investors, <laughs> investors are very much victimised. They're an easy target uh, to pin the yeah. tail on the donkey. And that's exactly what's happened. So uh, the, the LVRs, the loan to valuation ratios are less. The lending criteria is much more stringent. The rates are higher. Uh, yeah. you know, there, there really are some hurdles to allowing investors into the market. And there's still a few that are doing it and those, those that can, but we've seen a massive shift in that over, you know, the last five years in particular, right. uh, it's much more difficult now for an investor and, and much more expensive for an, an investor to get involved in property than it ever was. Yeah. Cause where I'm leading to this is, is we're sort of looking at the, the whole, the economy is sort of from the macro point of view and going, okay, we can see this sort of housing, um, housing strong patch coming up over the next sort of 12 to 18 months on the back of lower interest rates, um, lots of government stimulus, everything thrown at it um, and looking at what the danger parts are. But it sounds as if though as well, um, if the, if, if they do get through some, some restrictions, re reduce the restrictions on, on investors in March and manage to get through some of those, then we're actually probably, there's probably a bit more turbocharge for the housing market as, as investors um, yeah. suddenly get the green light to come back in. I think there will be. I think we're going to see two waves uh, in relation to what's likely to happen. And and again, I I, I, I hesitate to generalise in property uh, because of the individual nature of it. But in, in terms of the, the the sort of overall underlying drivers, I think the the change to the lending legislation is going to give a boost to demand because we're going to we're going to see people who haven't been able to get in get in. We're going to see uh, people who 
uh, couldn't borrow much be able to borrow more. So there is going to be significant demand that will come out of that, I believe. Uh, so, that, so this is demand though, but but in the flip side, it, like, you know, if, if I'm renting and now I decide to buy a house, it's, it hasn't really increased. It's increased the the, the demand for, for it to buy a house, but to actually have somebody to live in it, um, there's still a, does that make sense? Like, a, like, a, like a, if I go for, a, there's, there's one less renter in the market and there's one less, there's one more buyer in the market. So net, net, there's the same amount of demand for houses. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yet spot on, absolutely spot on, Damien. So uh, what, what I think we're going to see is that we, we still have an ongoing shortage at this point in time and that, that will peter out. Uh, so, yep. Some of the, some of the shortage uh, where population, the international migrants fell off the, the face of the earth straight away. A lot of that's been soaked up by returning expats. We've had, uh, yeah. I think, it's about two hundred and five thousand returning expats uh, this year. And, and, and it's yeah. a you're saying it's a compositional shortage. It's it's too many apartments, too few houses. We've got the wrong mix of what people want, and that's Come where on. the opportunity is, as opposed to the whole housing, the whole yeah residential market's going to rise. It's actually more of a yeah okay. Yeah, it's it's spot on. And then I think the second wave will be when the when that lag comes through and the, the borders do open and, and how long is a piece of string in relation to the, when the international borders do open. But one thing I'm pretty confident about is that, and, and doing some reading around government policy on this, that they recognise that we're going to need to be uh, filling the skilled migrant bucket uh, pretty quickly when we can. And, and given the way Australia's performed both in terms of the health and the economic performance side of the equation, there's going to be a lot of people that want to come to Australia as well. So I think um, uh, yeah. if they get it right, you know, and there's a, there's a lot of dynamics here, but if they get it right, given the shortage lag, the building approvals lag, the boost to demand that's coming out of lending is wave one, and then when they do open up the borders, and then there's, as I say, there's normally a sort of one to two year time lag between migrant arrival and them actually securing a permanent property, then it's yep. actually going to smooth and lengthen the tail. So I, I think we're, we're likely yeah. to see Yeah, so does that mean those well? So, so we're sort of... Uh, okay. It sort of means... Sort of Sorry, cut out. Oh, I, I cut out, did I? Sorry, I wasn't sure yeah, about yeah. somebody else. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so so sort of suggesting there's a hole somewhere in in the future, isn't there? Like two or three years out, in a little bit of demand, but that's not really affecting demand how, demand for houses at the moment. No, no, it, it's spot on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, there will be a softening at, at that point in time, and, that, and that's when the flight to quality. And, and again, I've always believed this because uh, I invest in equities as, as well as property. Obviously, the, the major difference between the two is given the imperfection of property then smart investors are securing uh, the right style of property in a, a location that's uh, got a real scarcity, uh, has, and there, there are these zones, particularly with what's happening with decentralization, it's going to mix up the, mix up the uh, recipe quite a bit because traditionally mm. everything's been focused around the, the uh, CBDs. It's, you know, if I, I use a really bad analogy, you know, the, the fried egg with the, the yolk being the CBD and then the, the suburbs surrounding, we're, we're moving to a scrambled egg type of an exercise mm. uh, in coming years because the, the infrastructure and the lifestyle and the, 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 the flight to the perceived safety and security and space that comes from uh, other areas is going to create 
potential growth zones in locations that wouldn't have been previously. So yeah, and that, but I'd, I'd still contend that <clears throat> for a lot of those, it's it's probably what you're really betting on there is that the the planning requirements and everything will stay roughly the same. Because I guess what I'm thinking yeah. is, let's say you picked somewhere like, I don't know, Bendigo or Ballarat or Dubbo or where it is, like a regional city and said, yeah, that's where I think there's going to be a big boom in houses there and, and all that type of stuff is realistically, they're, they're not particularly big and there's lots of empty land around them. If they wanted to just blast houses, as, you know, as many houses as, as it was demand, they could do it. But it's also, it's basically a bit of a bet that they're not going to do it. I, I think the underlying policy that we spoke about earlier is the, is the guiding hand. Because uh, anything that's done that, that's going to effectively reduce uh, the the value of most Australian families' uh, most ex- valuable asset is going to lose lose votes and lose power. So yeah, that's right. So regardless of how whether it's a good economic decision or not, it's, if it's a, it's a it's a good political decision to want to have house prices higher. It is. It is, and I mean we can argue the toss on that, but I I, I think that's the 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 actual reality of life in Australia, and and I guess from my perspective, uh, I'm taking advantage of that. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yep. Um, uh, responsible lending. Let's see the um, uh, income inequality. This is another one we we sort of pick on as being a a um, a key theme within within our um space in terms in terms of I guess all investing in, in terms of saying if I give a thousand dollars to to Australia's richest person then they, they're going to throw it on the pile or invest it and we've got a thousand dollars to Australia's poorest person uh, they're going to get out and spend it as quickly as possible or pay off their credit card debts or whatever it is that like that's that money's gone quickly and so we've got this demand imbalance that's sort of driving that and that what that means is it's pushing investment assets up um, it looks like the inequality is growing still I don't think there's a lot of you know we've given well doesn't look like it. It is growing still. We're just giving a bunch of tax cuts to higher tax earners. Um, do you do you look at the? Like, and it's always, always a bit these houses market versus versus um, apartments as well. As if you're saying, well, if you're not getting wage growth at the lower end of the market, then and and they're the types of people who would generally buy, you know, still trying to get their foot on the property ladder and buying apartments and and lower priced houses. Then um, you sort of get that more demand in that sort of. I don't know, one to to three million dollar range of, of houses. Is that is that how you'd look at it as well, or or how do you see an inequality sort of making a difference to um to to house prices? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's a really interesting one because uh, you know, again, there's there's been a lot of noise about social housing uh, uh, during the, mm. the COVID and the the lack of concentration on it, and you know it, it's there's no question that's an issue uh the i think the challenge is and it's maybe i'm showing my age here but uh i know when i was on the bones of my backside uh in my it was in the mid-30s when i went belly up and uh i really didn't have two cents i literally didn't have two cents to rub together and uh what we ended up doing that the first property that we secured we we became rent vessels before rent vessels was even a thing. This is this is in the late nineties. Uh, no one even spoke about rent vesting then. But uh, what and we sorry, you, you, and you probably better define it as well for people who haven't heard about it. Yeah, I, really simply, rent vesting is you you rent where you live, and you put your uh, investment power into a property that you can afford. So, and I'll, I'll give you the the exact situation for us. Uh, we uh, my 
now wife and I uh, rented a, a small uh, two bedroom uh, townhouse close to Adelaide City because uh, that's where our work was at the time. Uh, what we could afford to buy, we, the, the most we could afford was a property for 85,000 in those days, uh, even with 97% lending because we had a very small deposit. So we, we bought a property in the beachside uh, town of Aldinga Beach, about an hour south of Adelaide for 84 grand. That, that property is now worth uh, just under 500,000. Uh, that's sort of like a, nearly a 20 year or just over a 20 year investment horizon. Uh, I, my, and this is where I have sort of two minds around this. Uh, we have this sort of fixation in Australia that we've got to own the place that we live in. And uh, that's, that's almost unique to Australia. Uh, if we if we can break that, a lot of that's to do with the capital gains tax exemption, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. No, you're right. That's absolutely right. Uh, I mean, we were rent vessels for many years uh, because we were focused on building the portfolio, and we knew that the cheapest way to live, uh, but also hmm. maximise our capacity, was to to rent while we allowed our portfolio to do that. So uh, the question is: uh, Are we is it inequality in terms of home ownership? That's a little bit different to property ownership, because I think there are ways and means around it. If, that, if that's what we're really talking about, if, if we're talking about hurdles to property ownership versus home ownership, then slightly different approach. And, and I, the other thing that I see happening that's already started happening in New South Wales and to a lesser extent in Victoria is that the biggest hurdle to property ownership is stamp duty, mm. because you can't borrow the stamp duty. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's, we, we're talking roughly 5% on the, on the value of a property is what you've got to find uh, in cold, hard cash. Now, New South Wales already trialling the exercise where they're moving to a, effectively a, an ongoing tax rather than a big lump stamp duty. That, that will be a, a big hurdle because that, remembering that interest rates are very low and money is very cheap. Uh, if you knock out the deposit hurdle, then suddenly that those that have, have been missing out uh, have got an opportunity to get into the market if that's what they decide to do. So yeah, and and actually that's that's one of the ones we we run a property calculator where we we um we we rank a few different things. One of them is affordability. You know, what's a what's a median property cost to to rent versus the 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 cost to to borrow on that to have a mortgage on that same property. Yep. And 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 so those those are quite those are all generally quite low. And then we do the same thing with wages. What's the median uh, property uh, mortgage versus wages, and again, that's that's low-ish. It's not not that low, but you know, it's, um, but then you go back to the okay, what your deposit side? What are your wages compared to the um, compared to a deposit? And that's like, um, yeah, that's at basically record highs. And, and it is. I mean, and it's not a, like getting lower. It's spot on. It's a it's a for most for most the average employees. That's to, to get a twenty percent deposit. You're talking anywhere between four to six years. Hmm. So yep. that's a, it's a major barrier, and the big biggest chunk of that is the uh, stamp duty. Stamp duty. Because, mm. So you, I, I think there's going to be some movement in the station there, and it's it's already starting to happen. It's how the government funds it. It's how the state governments. I mean, the stamp duty is a big portion of state governments' uh, uh, revenue. Uh, yeah. To smooth it out, they're going to have to replace it with something or come up with a way of doing it. Yeah. But again, the cost of money is so cheap now that servicing debt for them isn't a big issue. And if it stimulates activity, which New South Wales has recognised, because yeah. New South Wales has the biggest hurdles, by the way, it's the, the it's, most expensive state. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm, 
I'm fully on board with the whole. Uh, I, I think it's great, be great to because I do think there's an element of um, of Australian houses that. Well, I think there's two parts. One's NIMBYism, and and the other ones, um, you know, the, the amount of travel that people have to do, which is around the thing is going. So I get a job somewhere close to me, great. Then I find another job, better job that's, you know, thirty kilometres away. Rather than move, I'll just I'll just go, you know, trans transport across half of Melbourne and spend an hour in traffic every day because it's going to cost me five percent of the value of my house to move. And so. There's an economic decision there, which is like, yes, I prefer to waste all my life in in transport rather than rather than have to go and save that that huge amount. And so I, I can certainly see the benefits of of flipping to um to a uh, a land tax. It's just interesting that part, isn't it? About whether does that just mean the land tax will get capitalised in higher higher share prices? Sorry, higher house prices if um. If and when it yeah, because you get the ongoing ongoing tax then, haven't you? To yeah, sort of factor. No, so yeah. exactly, it becomes a subscription income basically, which is ultimately going to be worth more to them and and oh, uh, and much better for governments. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Totally, much yeah. cash flow, and, and it, it, if that barrier is removed, then you're going to get a lot more churn in property as well for exactly the reason you just mentioned, Damien. That it'll be much easier to move. So uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this pans out. But with the, with that balances, of course, with the the move to remote working, uh, because I think there's going to be a well, there already has been a significant shift in the in the way we work and how we work. And and I mm. I, I really do think the work from home exercise exercise will, will become a, a staple diet for many. So yeah, uh, and that and that's that other part for the the short term demand is that you know uh, if you have a house without an office, all of a sudden you need a house with an office, and if you have a house with one office, maybe now you need a house with two offices because your wife and yourself are both working from home, or whatever it is. And yeah, yeah, I, I, it's, it's interesting. The investors we've been helping probably for the last five years, we we have been uh, making sure that because we do we facilitate predominantly new builds, we've made sure that there are a separate. Uh, home offices built in that can double as a living space if it needs to, but it, it means that if someone has a business from home, someone can walk in the front door into the office and then back out the house without going through the lounge room or the or anything else. So I, that that is a there's a real shift there. And I, again, I think all the all COVID's done is accelerated uh, trends that were starting to occur, but it's thrown the petrol on the fire. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so let's let, uh, cognizant of your time and thanks for uh, spending so much with us. I just want to get to, I want to get to the, some of these longer term ones as well before we before we finish though. So, um, so this yes, yeah, so I look upon you know assets in in the longer term, and I'll, I'll we'll, we'll do it to houses at the moment. But I'm I'm thinking that it's the same to me. It's the same for um for for shares, but yeah. I'm basically saying the total return for an investor is whatever you're getting in net rent. Um, less whatever you have to spend in capital and plus whatever you get in capital growth. And then I look upon the capital growth as saying, well, if your rent's growing, then your capital is going to grow roughly at the same rate as your 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 rent if your valuation stays the same. Um, and let's say we're going to use net yield as a, as a valuation. And yep. so if I want to get capital growth, I need growth in rent and I need, um, and I want to try and get this change in, in property valuation as well. Um, so I want yields to get to get lower. So the last 20, 30 years has sort of been this perfect environment where yields just keep falling every year. Yeah. And and when I put those numbers into into context, I say, well, let's say rent, although it's been growing less than inflation for a while, let's say it's going to grow at 2%. And then I say, um, you know, the net rental return, I'm sort of, let's say 2% as well. 
I don't know if that's roughly what you're seeing. Yep. Um, so I'm saying, okay, well, so, so getting about 4%, um, my capital spending calculation says if, if a house is sort of a third of a third of the value and, and the land is the other 67%, and I, I just give it a, a you know, back of the envelope 50 year life, and it'll be like longer for the structure and shorter for all the, the bits to go into it. And I depreciate that at 2% per annum. That sort of gives me roughly about 0.7% that's going to be detracted. I need to, I need, I need to be spending on the house. Yeah. Or if I'm not spending it on, you know, new kitchens and stuff like that, I guess the kitchens are getting worse. And so I'm not quite getting the same property growth. And so, so I sort of look at that part and go, okay, well, that means I'm getting like a sub 4% return. Um, and... And and then so and, and this is long term. I think short term I can see where this is this is going to drive. But but longer term I'm going well. If I'm getting sub four percent return, and it's quite geared, so I'm taking a fair bit of risk. Um, unless I can really see that valuation, the yield's going to get keep getting lower. Then it's pretty hard to get to to higher levels of returns. Yeah, and, and on a on a generalized basis, I think you you're spot on. This is where the 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 art and science of property uh, comes into play, Damien, uh, because mm. uh, you need to line up uh, all of the key factors to uh, ensure you get the right result. And and I'll I'll, I'll be straight up. Our our and my approach and the approach that we adopt with uh, most of our clients who are in the accumulation phase of of their journey, uh, there's a much bigger focus on capital growth than there is on rental yield. So, uh, but there are significant benefits in new build versus existing, but because I, let me, I guess, let, let me unpack the sort of a approach that, that became the mainstay for the book. Uh, my, my study of property generally suggests that uh, growth cycles in, in uh, locations and each location is acting independent of the other generally uh, you know, and I'm talking suburb to suburb level, but that, that sort of uh, more micro level. Uh, property cycle, generally, if you're really lucky and it goes well, it's eight years, but more generally it's 15. So you, if, if you're looking to go through a full property cycle, uh, then you need to be into the property for at least 15 years to do that. And there's going to be, uh, during that 15 years, there's probably going to be five to eight years where the growth is pretty flat. And then, then you're going to see uh, growth spurts of between two to five years, which is generally driven either by changes in zoning, changes in infrastructure, uh, changes in employment, uh, the, the things that tend to impact on it. Uh, gentrification gets thrown into that as well. Uh, but if you, uh, for the sake of the book, uh, just so that you know, you've done some good uh, uh, re-engineering there i reckon uh, damien in in sort of breaking down the numbers but the sort of growth rates that i was using when i wrote the book uh from memory i was using inflation of about 2.65 percent which is proven to be a lot yeah, higher than that's... what the reality is but it was sort of trying to zone it within that sort of two to three uh percent range yep, two to three percent i think it's fair yep fair enough yep. So it's probably a tad high, but the reality of that is, you know, we're now in a uh, lower half percent here or there. Yeah, that's a <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair bit. Uh, the growth rates I was using for property, uh, I think, was about five point four percent to do the numbers. Uh, yeah. And I and I, I like to be very conservative. So, 
but but I was looking backwards. So I looked back at uh, some numbers that were prepared by AMP and the Real Estate Institute that went back to 1926, and we've had both shares and property performed at just a tad over 11%. Uh, yeah, I I think I'm not I'm not sure with those numbers, but I guess my my concern with those ones is I I think the property ones they haven't included any capital in that I think is where the problem is. But I but I haven't but I don't know for certain. I've tried yeah. to find the, the bits, but 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 I do I do get I do get that property. Um, it's a similar it's it's a similar ish return to to, to shares, I guess. It's similar, and certainly over the last certainly over the last. 20, 30 years, yeah. but I guess what I'm, my concern is, especially the last 20, 30 years, is that it's falling interest rates that have helped property, and 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 there's a number of stocks that it's really helped as well. Like it's not just like it's it's helped both property and shares in that frame. So it's not just a it's it's not just a property thing. I guess what I'm just concerned about is I'm always concerned about valuation, and, yeah. and just and 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 for me. It's hard to find any asset class at the moment. You know, shares don't. Shares look expensive, bonds look expensive, housing looks expensive. It all looks expensive, <laughs> and now it's just a it's just a relative game between the two. And so that's what I I guess I'm just trying to set the the expectations for people as well that if you buy shares when they're really expensive, then you can't expect a great return for over the next sort of 20, 30 years. And the same with property, or same with bonds, whatever whatever asset class it is. Spot on. And so absolutely yeah. spot on. So yeah, and yeah, I, I I totally agree with what you're saying there. Uh, the, mm. the, the trick then is to find affordable properties that have the growth drivers. And that's where if you take yeah. a borderless, borderless national approach, I mean, mm. I'll give you some uh, comparisons here, Damien. Uh, if you look at the performance of property over the last 25 years, and this was a, a core logic study that was released recently, uh, yep. nine out of the 10 best performing areas in terms of capital growth were all in the regions. Only one of them was in a capital city, right? And we're talking which reasons? Which reasons were there? Uh, yeah, I'll give you the mix. I'll, I'll give them to you basically. So uh, of the, the the top ten, uh, that highest performing was uh, Suffolk Park in the council area of Byron in New South Wales. Uh, that came right. at eleven point seven percent over that twenty five year period. Uh, yeah. We've got areas like uh, Lycanot in uh, the southwest of WA. We've got Millerfield and Kalala Bay uh, in New South, along with Waddle Ponds, Meadow Springs uh, near Mandurah in WA. I mean, a big percentage of them have been, been in WA actually. And then at the bottom end of the list, we've got Flinders in the Illawarra, Illawarra New South Wales, and Gundaroo in the uh, Yass Valley. And that, that right. all of those properties have performed 10%, 10.7% and above over that 25-year period. Uh, but they're coming off a low base. Mm. The, the, the trick with, with property, and again, you know, there's everyone's got a, a different approach to property, but our approach is if you find a regional area that has a critical mass of population of 100,000 and it's got diverse industries, because you, you can't be a one-horse pony in property as, as the mining towns have evidenced over the last 10 years, but if it's got yep. a diverse economy and it's got strong and growing incomes uh, based on uh, employment hubs and it's got lifestyle amenity that's attached to that but people want to live there then they are the fits because you need you need strong incomes and growing incomes because people have got to be able to continue to pay more for property for the property values ultimately go up so yeah. uh, 
and and if you throw throw that blanket across the country, there aren't too many areas that tick all of those boxes. So, yeah, well, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be hugely negative on property because the same thing happens for shares as well. But it's, it is that point, and I guess what you're making is that, you know, the let's say the average ends up being four or even five percent as a as a natural sort of growth. If you're in, there's going to be a bunch of properties that are growing at zero or going backwards, yep. and there'll be some that are growing at eight or or ten percent, and so, yeah, spot yeah. on. And so and, you, and you, it's, yeah, I often use that exactly that analogy. If you if you look at Adelaide, for example. Uh, in recent times, there's a lot of commentators that suggested, you know, it's sort of growth has sort of been two or three percent. And if you aggregate, then then that's right. But there are areas in the eastern suburbs of Adelaide that have achieved consistently you know, between 15 to 18 percent growth uh, over mm. the same period. So uh, the devil's in the detail. With this, I'm sure it's no different in the stock market. It, there's, it's oh, absolutely. Again, yeah. uh, with the fruit, and and it's it's the quality of your knowledge and your advice. That's that's putting people into into assets that are going to perform better than the average because let's face it if we're all average whether it be property or or shares it's mm. it's a toss of a coin it's, it's there's probably better places to stick your money yeah yeah well at the moment it's hard to find places to stick your money anywhere that's what that's what the that's what the the RBA is trying to do they're trying to force us out of force everyone out of cash into the next highest and the next highest and everything's getting bit up so yeah right. that's um. You're right. The the struggle we're all facing at the moment is trying to find assets that are, in some way, reasonably priced. <laughs> yeah, well, the only good thing I think we have is is volatility and a lot of cash, and if you put those two together with a fair bit of change, then the opportunities are going to emerge. So, you know, I'd, yeah. I'd, if you're looking at an asset in terms of its function, you want stability. But if you're looking at an asset in terms of its investability, then you're actually looking for change. And I think uh, we've just had the perfect perfect mix there that's actually going to stir things up and create some significant opportunity. Yeah, excellent. Look, thanks a lot for your time. Tim, do you have anything you want to... Oh, look, yeah, uh, just, a, just a quick one for me, Bushy, actually. Um, and I know we've probably got a few listeners sitting there gnashing their teeth, um, and obviously you've had some terrific success over the last 20, 25 years, you were saying, um, in sort of building your your base and, and, you know, getting the experience you have, which is phenomenal. Um the question I have, which which comes up, and I'm speaking from the the Gen, the Gen Y, perhaps, and the Gen Z sort of side of things, is back in the day, it kind of felt like you just bought a property and that was it. You're on your way, and you could buy another one. You can buy another one. Um, would you would you say that it's harder now to buy an investment property than it would would have been perhaps in you know twenty odd years ago? Is there is there more skill in it now than there was in just you know saying, oh yeah, Essendon seems like an all right joint. I'll I'll go by there twenty five or thirty years ago. This Essendon Victoria. Um, and you know, before you know it, it's you know it's a multi-million dollar pile of um, weatherboards. So, um, you know, just your reflections, I guess, on on you know how how investing in the property market might have changed over the last 20, 20 odd years, or you know, over the, the duration. Definitely got tougher, and yep. the the primary. You know, I've said this a few times. Property is a game of finance because uh, it's access to credit that really determines uh, what you can do. Uh, Credit's got really tough. I mean, I, I've mentioned a couple of times when I started, I could borrow 97% plus the mortgage insurance, which meant effectively I needed to come up with 3% deposit plus the stamps. Mm. Uh, these days, if you're an investor, you've got to come up with at least 10% uh, plus the plus the stamp. So the hurdle to entry in terms of that deposit piece and the equity piece is, is a lot harder than what it used to be. Uh, but I, I think we're about to see that change. 
Uh, that's that's where I, I think there'll be a fair bit more flexibility come into the, the process as of March next year. Uh, let, let's wait and see. Uh, it'll, and it'll take some time. It won't be an overnight change because uh, habits die hard in banks. So it'll probably take six months to flow through. Uh, but certainly, uh, and, and that's why I, I'm, I mentioned the rent vesting exercise, um, Tim, because uh, I think that the shift in our psyche needs to be, let's, let's separate uh, access from ownership. So, uh, you know, it's that old collaborative uh, consumption uh, philosophy of uh, accessing things that you want to enjoy lifestyle wise. Uh, but invest in assets that are going to appreciate in value. So uh, if you're happy to rent for a period and use what a available capacity you have to find a property somewhere else around the country that's going to perform in terms of its investment potential, because that does that sort of investment potential is still well and truly there, no question about that. But it's just it's just getting in. So if if uh, Gen Ys and 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 Zs and uh, the rest of the alphabet are uh, uh, thinking about uh, how can we better establish ourselves, then uh, adopting that sort of a rent vesting approach, I think, is a is one that we're going to see a lot more of. It's certainly, I mean, I perhaps perhaps uh, myself and my wife are a bit odd, but uh, we were very very comfortable uh, renting for, for quite an extensive period of time while we built the portfolio, uh, and yes, it wasn't ours. But it was close to where we wanted to. It had all the lifestyle benefits. But because we're investing, we knew it was a means to an end. So we yeah. were stressed about it. But, but I think yeah. as well that sounds like a that sounds like a lot of. Um, I mean, one of the biggest finance tips uh, you know I like to give when when friends and relatives ask is saying, well, you know, you want to live, um, you want to live somewhere as as um, you know as as cheap as your ego live somewhere and drive something as cheap as your ego will allow, because. Um, you know, you want it to be functional and, and have the things you want, but but in the end, there's a there's a certain amount of status, isn't there? And sometimes that you can say if, you, if you're too busy chasing statuses, oh no, I have to live in the best house and the best street, and I have to drive the the, the most expensive car I can find. And if it means I, I I don't have any money left over for investing because I'm doing that, then that's just life, you know. And if I if you feel like you need to show everyone how successful you're being that way, um, then then you 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 you're going to struggle to to invest. Whereas if you can actually sort of, you know, you might have the greatest offense in the world in, in terms of your income, but you, you also need the defense in terms of saying, well, sometimes it's a matter of just taking the ego back and saying, well, maybe I, maybe I don't need a new car every three years. Maybe I can wait five or seven years before having so, to, to cash in again. Absolutely nailed that, mate. You're, you're absolutely spot on. And, and I, I mean, we did live on the smell of an oily rag uh, when, when we started. We, we lived really cheap. Because, uh, but but I was absolutely determined. I, I was in my mid thirties and it was a start again. So I was I was on a mission to try and uh, get myself in the right position as as quickly as I possibly could. So we we, you know, we made some sacrifices. We lived pretty simply and pretty lamely there for quite some period. We, but but by the same token, we st still went to Bali every year. We still it wasn't it wasn't like we were, uh, we didn't feel like we'd um, disadvantaged ourselves. Yeah. Uh, but, but spending wisely well, yeah yeah that's right you still need to live your life you can't say okay i'm going to live in this place at hovel and i'm not going to do anything and i'm going to retire with and i'm going to die with you know 50 million dollars and then never have to spend it all yeah well that's a waste but the flip side is yeah it's saying if you want to it's getting that getting the threading that needle correctly isn't it it is i mean if, if you're living on i've often said if you're living on uh, dog food and baked beans 
uh, while you grow an investment portfolio, you, you won't last the distance. You, you won't, you won't yeah. get there. Uh, you've got to, right. got to do this in such a way that it doesn't impact too much on lifestyle. So there are definitely ways of making that happen. But the biggest yeah. shift I think we struggle with is that we live in an instant iPhone everything world right now. And our, yeah. our distance and patient muscles are withered on the vine because we just don't have to use them anymore. But so, buy now, pay later. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's our biggest challenge is is how, and, and I'd love to explore this with you guys at some time because the biggest challenge I have is is uh, getting people to see the benefits in delayed gratification. It's uh, a... Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also think there's some, there is something in that, look, I mean, we, we certainly don't advocate debt, certainly not for the equity portfolios. We're very much saying, look, you know, that's um, you're better off just investing what you have. But there is a certain element of, there's, a, some, there's some debt discipline that people, in terms of when they have a pile of debt, they want to pay it down. And they're like, okay, if you had to say, say to them, okay, I need you to save $300,000 over the next 10 years, They'd be like, wow, that sounds like really hard. And then you build up a pile and then, no, oh, let's go. Yeah, there's a nice new car or a nice boat I need to buy or whatever. But yeah. if it's a, here's a $300,000 mortgage I want you to pay off over that period, it's like, oh, okay, well, let me get to it. And I can see that going down. And it's sort of, there's almost, yeah, there's, there's almost a mental trick in that, isn't there? There is, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. It becomes forced savings, there's no question about it. And that's exactly what it was for us. Our, our portfolio had become our forced savings plan, actually. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, no, it's interesting. And it, but, but it's a good, Good comment you make there, Tim. Uh, I, I think the again the the same. I guess the same advice I got from my father because I wanted it all yesterday, uh, and he said, "Well, you can have everything as just as soon as you saved up for it." So uh, yeah, that was pretty much that was as simple as I got when it comes to cars. Anything if I wanted, it, I had to go out and, and earn it myself, and I did the same yeah. with my son. And well, uh, and that's yeah. Yeah. I tell my kids, a car's a liability. The more you want to spend on it, you've just created yourself a bigger future liability. So, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, 100%. But I think uh, sort of circling back to your question there, Tim, uh, it certainly isn't as easy to finance the investment size it used to be, no question. But uh, but I do think that that rent vesting model is one that uh, you know, I, can, I can tell you how, how good it's been for us personally. And then let's face it, eighty-four thousand bucks isn't a, isn't a lot for a property, and and you can you're not in some areas around the country that still have the right sort of parameters. You can still spend under one hundred and fifty grand and and be off and running, and that doesn't doesn't require a massive uh, deposit because there are mm. still banks there are still banks that'll let you borrow ninety five percent of the value of the property even today. So it's, well, it's yep. just a matter of... It's got to make sure you've done your homework. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and just don't make the mistake of going to your bank uh, because uh, there's a lot of very competitive and inventive uh, lending solutions out there these days. So yeah. that's yep. one of the biggest mistakes people... Well, and, yeah, that's right. And, and as that homework, I, I'm going to double double emphasize that because there's nothing worse than the, the ones buying it because you saw some at a property spruiking conference telling you the greatest or you're, you're on the way back from the beach on your holiday house and you decided, hey, that's a great idea. Why don't I buy the, buy the house down the street or whatever? It's like, you know, actually sit back and do the research first before you, uh, before you jump in. 100%. Mm. No different, whatever you're investing in, whether it be equities, property, or you name it, crypto for those that are dipping their toe in. In that area, I'd be using the same due diligence before I put my heart in into anything. 
Mm. Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, look, um, yeah, thanks very much for your time there, Bushy. We have gone a tad over, so I do appreciate that. Um, would you like to share with our audience? Obviously, we'll put the links to your books up in the show notes uh, for, for our publication here and our, our podcast, but um, where they can follow, where our viewers, sorry, can follow uh, your work. Yeah, so the easiest way to yeah to get in touch with us is just at uh, knowhowproperty.com.au, the website, or at my personal website, bushymartin.com.au. Uh, and uh, much like your very good podcast here today, guys, uh, if you want to learn a bit more around the property side, come and join me on the Get Invested podcast, uh, which uh, just type it into Spotify or iTunes, and uh, every week we have a long-form conversation just like this one. Wonderful. Yeah, we'll have to check it out. No worries at all. Well, look, thanks again for your time, mate. We look forward to getting you back on the show sometime soon. Good on you, Bushy. Look forward to it. Thanks a lot, Damien. Thanks, Tim. And that's a wrap. Thanks again to all of those who have watched in for another great episode. I hope you've taken away some great ideas. And if you haven't already, feel free to click like on the video to give us some feedback. If you'd like to see more of our content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content. To start to date on news from us, follow us on social media. And finally, if you know anyone who'd get something out of today's episode, let them know about it, share with a friend and help our show grow. Thanks for tuning in for our last show of 2020. This year has certainly been one for the ages, and with a little luck, a lot more hand-washing and a global effort to avoid bat soup, it will soon become a distant memory in short order. We thank all of our listeners for taking the time to tune in and share in our ideas and outlooks. These shows are a power of work, but have grown tremendously this year with your support. So all the best from myself, Tim Fuller and the team, and we wish you all good fortune and health in 2021. We'll see you there. Cheers.